0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member
1: today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022, we have a litigation update on Falski's IlSat. A Case on Racial Discrimination in the American Rescue Plan. My name is Ryan Lacy, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinions are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have excellent speakers in Rick Eisenberg and Devin Westhill, whom I'll introduce briefly. Rick Eisenberg is the Founder and current President and General Counsel of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And Devin Westhill is the President and General Counsel at the Center for Equal Opportunity. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll handle questions as we can to the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Devin, the floor is yours. Thank you
0: very much, Ryan. And um, I I think I'll just talk briefly about how I expect this conversation to go, and I do hope that uh, it will develop into a conversation uh, at the tail end um, of, of the program. At the outset, I'll let everyone know who's listening. Um, I've already told Rick, he was really, really upset about it, but uh, I do have a hard stop today <laughs> because my children have started back school and I've uh, not adjusted my schedule accordingly. So, around the 240 something mark on the East Coast here, we're going to have to hang it up. Um, so please get your questions in to us as early as you possibly can. Uh, that way uh, I can pose them to Rick or I can answer them myself if they're directed towards me But uh, so that we can get to all of your questions as, as, as quickly as we can in the 40 minutes or so that we have. Um, so what I expect uh, we'll do is um, I'll introduce myself just for a second um, then turn it over to Rick, uh, who is our main speaker. He'll introduce himself, uh, I hope. Tell us more about his organization uh, that uh, some uh, viewers may not be familiar with, um, what they're generally up to, and then specifically uh, to go into uh, the Faust v. Vilsack uh, litigation update that he has for us. So. As Ryan suggested, um, I am Devin Westhill. I run an organization called the Center for Equal Opportunity that uh, has been doing only basically one thing for 30 years or it's had one mission and that is to advance colorblind equal opportunity and non-discrimination in America. So this is squarely within um, our area of interest, the the Faust v. Vilsack case, the entire uh, farmer rancher loan relief uh, issues associated with with this matter. This is also of of a lot of interest to me because immediately prior to my time at CEO, um, I ran the civil rights program at USDA. Um, And from the earliest days, I've heard about uh, the allegations uh, from uh, uh, minority farmers, principally black farmers, that they've been discriminated against in USDA programs, um, activities, uh, lending uh, for decades. And there've been a number of cases that have uh, Attempted to resolve some of these allegations, and the government has issued uh, mea culpa, mea culpa, multiple times uh, over over those decades. Uh, in fact, I was so interested in this that I I bought this book, Dispossession, by Pete Daniel, uh, which purports to. Uh, provide examples of, of where uh, this discriminatory activity was occurring at USDA uh, and around the country uh, for a n- number of decades. But with that said, I'll have some questions and some comments for Rick. Please be thinking about your questions, your comments. Um, but for now, I'm going to turn it over to Rick and I uh, want to hear from him.
2: Yeah, um, I'm Rick Essenberg, I'm President and General Counsel of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL as we're often known. Um, Uh, Will is a uh, uh, state-based litigation center that um, I founded in um, 2011. Um, We do the panoply of litigation work. We've added a think tank component. Um, But towards the end of... uh, 2020 and beginning of 2021, um, we decided to do something a little bit different. We launched what we call an equality under the law project. And uh, this was in response to uh, what I perceived as um, a growing elite consensus that uh, that, uh, replaced the concept of equal opportunity with something called equity. Uh, replaced the concept of uh, non-discrimination with something called anti-racism, which might very well involve discrimination. And it seemed that um, there was um, a need um, for movement litigators to get involved in this. Uh, We decided for the first time that, uh, although this case that I'm about to talk about today was in Wisconsin, we decided that we would take cases outside of Wisconsin. And we have um, proceeded to, to, to do that Um, And uh, the case that we're going to talk about today, Faust versus versus Vilsack, is is an example of the type of thing that um, we felt needed to be responded to. Uh, The law of affirmative action and racial preference has been a mess for a long time, uh, really going back to the Bakke decision in the mid-70s and before then. Um, And oftentimes that's been because there have been two competing uh, groups on the court, um, one broadly favorable to racial preferences, one broadly hostile to racial preferences and um the controlling opinions have tended to be written by uh, swing justices like louis powell Sandra d o'connor uh, anthony kennedy they have tended to be opaque uh and uh and and as a result so is our law of of racial preference. So we've seen this in the college admission context where you can use race in order to get class diversity, but you can't use it for anything else, but you can't go too far. And uh, and all of this um, provides very little uh, direction. And as a practical matter, um, covers up uh, for um, a a lot of racialization of decisions about college admissions, uh, uh, decisions about um, granting of government and contracts. Um, but what we saw in ARPA uh, and uh, was um, a willingness, an unprecedented willingness, really, in some ways, on the behalf of the Biden administration to abandon this opacity and to say, look, we are going to give we are going to give out government benefits on the basis of race. We're not going to opt. Call it a thumb on a scale. We're not going to use uh, uh, some type of uh, of masking criteria uh, to uh, uh, to hide what we're doing, uh, and that's certainly we, we had two cases that. Uh, 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 were decided about the same time, one in the Sixth Circuit called the versus Guzman that had to do with uh, restaurant revitalization funds. Um, that did hide a little bit behind the definition of socially disadvantaged under the SBA, but um, we'll talk maybe about that a little bit later. I, I don't think that really uh, hides what's going on at all. Um, but uh, this part of ARPA, uh, the, the Farm Loan Forgiveness Program, was a program which was explicitly based on race. And what it said is if you were a member of a certain racial classification and you had debt as of January 1st, 2021, your debt would be forgiven. In fact, it was even better than that. It was like a Quicken Loans program where you got cash back, uh, 120% of your debt would be forgiven. And uh, you were eligible for this program If you were black, if you were Hispanic, if you were Native American, if you were none of those things, you were not eligible for the program. Uh, Our lead plaintiff in the case, and we had some farmers from really across the upper Midwest, was uh, was a guy named Adam Faust. Um, Adam had debt. Um, Almost all farmers have debt. Um, and uh, he had it um, because he had purchased the farm um, from his family. Uh, Adam uh, had grown up on a farm in Cribbs, Wisconsin. Uh, Adam uh, is uh, disabled. Uh, he's lost uh, both of his feet, uh, but nevertheless, he carries on. And uh, he's, got, uh, he's got a fair amount of debt, he's paying it down, uh, but he was ineligible for this program because he is a white male. Uh, we brought uh, a case in the uh, Eastern District of Wisconsin, uh, in the Green Bay Division, uh, the case was assigned uh, to a judge uh, named William Griesbach, and we sought a temporary restraining order. Uh, our argument was simple. Um, our argument was that um, explicit racial preferences have always been subject to strict scrutiny, That. Uh, Uh, that uh, we all know that strict scrutiny requires um, uh, that a program be necessary to achieve a compelling interest. Um, There had been nothing showing a remedial interest in the uh, uh, blanket conferral of uh, debt forgiveness uh, to African-American farmers or other farmers in covered racial groups. Um, There was uh, no form of disparity study that could justify this. Uh, Devin referred to a history of discrimination by uh, USDA against black farmers. But this case really had nothing to do with that. It was in the backdrop. But um, a farmer, in order to get uh, loan forgiveness, um, did not have to show that he or she had been subjected to any of this discrimination in the past. Um, In fact, um, a farmer who had, you know, uh, entered the, uh, uh, you know, bought their farm and and, and started to farm uh, in 2020 uh, would have qualified for this um, debt forgiveness. And um, given the fact that the Supreme Court has required uh, uh, strict scrutiny, given the fact that the Supreme Court has made clear that something called societal discrimination cannot justify racial preferences. In other words, uh, at least to this point, our Supreme Court has, um, has set itself, I think, against um, uh, what is this elite consensus around systemic discrimination and equity and anti-racism, um, uh, we were able to go in and convince Judge uh, Griesbach to issue a temporary restraining order um, halting the program. And the program was indeed halted. Um, there were other cases. Uh, PLF, I think, got a an injunction uh, down in Florida. Uh, the program, uh, as part of the... Uh, Calling it nowadays the Inflation Reduction Act, or we abandoned that name for it. Uh, it was um, uh, uh, abolished. Or it was rescinded um, in this recent legislation that Congress passed. Um, there are some programs that are taking its place. Uh, uh, some of them are keyed to a finding of past discrimination. Although interestingly, the discrimination can and must have occurred prior to January 1st, 2021. So none of the farmers who might think that they have a claim because of this loan forgiveness program uh, will have a claim against USDA under this particular statute. There are some other provisions in which I think the devil is in the detail and we'll be Watching that. and uh, But uh, at least so far in this case, um, uh, Faust versus PhilSec, just like our Vitolo versus Guzman case, um, uh, we were able to get decisions which reaffirm the notion that this type of um, explicit racial um, uh, preference is impermissible.
0: Rick. Um. Hope I'm not jumping in too early here, but um, I, I, I'm interested in hearing your response to um, you know what potentially will come out during litigation. I, I think you're still in the district court uh, level, going back and back and forth. But uh, um, the government does, case law bears out, have a compelling interest in remedying past uh, discrimination. There's three factors basically that have to be shown. Um, uh, you know, a specific episode of discrimination, uh, intentional discrimination, uh, and the government was involved uh, either actively or passively. Is it your position that the government can come back uh, in subsequent uh, iterations of of, of briefs in, in this case and say well look actually here here is all the evidence that we actually were relying on um, we do pass this this test uh put forward uh and and the case law um are, are, are in your view are they able to overcome that big burden of showing because it's permissible to use race as a remedy in certain situations but can can they do it here it, what's your what's your yeah. I, mean, I think your position has to be no they can't but I'm, I'm just yeah. curious
2: I think I think not in this particular case because the program itself um and and you know we we argued that none of these three criterion were were met in uh in the case uh and 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 weren't met because um your eligibility um um, for this race-based preference um, didn't turn on your ability to show that you were subject to discrimination, that you could have been subject to discrimination. None of that was necessary. And, uh, and, and I don't think that um, uh, those issues will sneak back into this particular case, because the particular um, part of ARPA that um, provided relief here was, was repealed um, in the recent Inflation Reduction Act, and so um, you know we haven't uh, come to any final decision, but arguably these cases are now moot. But um, there is a provision uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that allocates, appropriates uh, funds for the very, very thing that you're talking about. And, uh, you know, we were discussing before we went on the air about, you know, um, additional avenues for future litigation. And um, I I do think that um, the, the... the meaning and scope of these three criteria is requirement of specific episodes, um, if there is such a requirement of intentional discrimination and of active. And I think this is the significant part, passive government involvement in these programs, I think is going to be a fruitful area for, um, you know, for, 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 for litigation, because um, uh, you know, we have a case called Bruckner now, which is pending down in the middle of District of Florida, which I think um, uh, has the potential, at least, to raise some of the Croson issues where, you know, we're arguing that this is a 10 percent set aside for um, minority contractors uh, uh, in uh, uh, surface transportation uh, uh uh, coding contracts, uh, I think is as the term, and um, you know we, you know, there's no, I think, adequate disparity to study done here, but um, I do think that there are some salient issues about um, uh, just how close the connection has to be between uh, both past instances of discrimination. And the particular person who is claiming to be benefited by the program. And uh, so um, I I think that I I think there will be, uh, particularly with this court, some opportunities for further litigation um, to clarify and perhaps limit appropriately some of those concepts.
0: I really appreciate that. See, we do have a couple of questions, and I'm going to turn to those uh, in just a minute. But I wanted to follow up on something, Rick, uh, that you said. Um, I thought you said that the the uh, essentially the ARPA cases are mooted right now uh, because of subsequent legislation. Uh, the
2: farm cases. There are other provisions of ARPA issues, but but the farm the farm loan forgiveness that program was specifically repealed in the Inflation Reduction Act. I
0: should have been more specific the, the farm cases, right. The farmer rancher cases. Um, I think it's really interesting. I, I don't remember hearing this in, in your update, but um, the government did a very unusual thing here when the TRO was issued as well, and that they did not contest it. Um, your thoughts on why that occurred and is this largely gamesmanship knowing that they'd get they get another crack at the apple? I
2: think they upward? knew they were going to lose. Um, uh, you know, in the, um, In the Vitolo case and the restaurant revitalization case, which which was was an interesting case because uh, there, the government um, uh, set aside, uh, set up a twenty billion dollar fund to provide um, relief to restaurants impacted by COVID, and uh, uh, and and did so on the basis of race. uh, And although all restaurants could apply for the program. those who are members of certain racial groups and women and veterans um, had a preference. And uh, once the 28, the money was going to be allocated first to the applicants of um, to these preferred applicants. Um, everybody knew that uh, the $28 billion was going to fly out the window. Nobody else was going to get a chance to get any of it. And it was going to happen within about a month. And so it wound up being, you know, a, a, a race, you know, down to the courthouse in Chattanooga. That's not too bad. I like Chattanooga. Uh, uh, we were not successful there. We didn't get a TRO, but we were able to get a, a preliminary injunction in the Sixth Circuit, uh, albeit a divided panel. Um, but there at least they had the opportunity to argue um, that, uh, that that uh, uh, the situation was a little bit different because they had. Um, this uh, concept of social disadvantage under the SBA, um, which essentially says that you have to be uh, subject to racial or ethnic prejudice or cultural bias. Now, everybody, and, and that members of certain racial groups are presumed have been subject to ethnic racial or cultural bias now you know there's a process to get other people into that category nobody is in that other category and um and even if they were they could be um the the presumption itself i think raises constitutional uh constitutional issues um but but uh but i think what was interesting about both of these cases Um, is the government's willingness to do the very thing, to try to go beyond the very thing that you very appropriately pointed out, that, you know, government, you know, if we look at past cases, government has... can sometimes establish a compelling interest under certain circumstances. Um, But, you know, they were citing newspaper articles. They were citing, you know, things that everybody knows uh, about, uh, uh, you know, business failures in the wake of COVID. And uh, I think that the the real question is whether the government is going to retreat from that or whether they can find um, other ways Uh, to get at the same thing that will allow them to argue um, that they're not engaged in these explicit racial preferences. And it's tough, I think, because um, it would be one thing if the government was willing to allocate these these benefits based, for example, on the economic circumstance of of uh, of the potential beneficiary. So, you know, you get your loan forgiven if, you know, your farm is, you know, below some certain revenue level or, you know, has certain other, you know, financial characteristics, same thing for your restaurant. Um, But that's not what they want to do. What they want to do is uh, is uh, 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 respond to what they believe is systemic racism Um, in pursuit of of equity and anti-racism. And And it's gonna be very, very difficult for them to find a a satisfactory definition of who is covered and when benefits are available uh, that, satisfies their desire to respond, uh, uh, you know, to those perceived ills, and not simply to provide, you know, economic uh, relief um, to poor folks, which will, you know, disproportionately go to minorities because minorities are disproportionately poor, no, no, not necessarily a racial preference, but one that responds to their economic circumstance i really
0: appreciate that response i had one follow-up i know we've got like three questions out so we're going to get to them um but allow me just this last one One thing i'll say is that you know having been an official um uh, at usda during some of uh these you know some of these questions coming up discharging debt and so on and so forth um i think there are some unintended consequences that folks ought to think about before being you know even engaging in a program like that, such as the, uh, the fact that um, you could be ineligible uh, to do business again uh, or, or to get another loan through USDA programs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, and I'm not as familiar as as my uh, former colleague, Judge Vaden. Uh, so I, I would defer to, you know, he, he answered the questions on that. But there are unintended consequences uh, to these things as well. Uh, one, one follow-up question I wanted to ask, and then we'll get to our questions, is you indicated that, you know, you think the government didn't um, uh, uh, didn't contest the TRO, in part because they, they knew they were going to lose. Now there's, there's going to lose, and then there's going to really lose. Um, there's some speculation that one of the reasons why government didn't want to pursue this was that it could have some impact on other race conscious regimes like affirmative action. Um, what's your take on that? And on the flip side of that, In the cases that you litigate in this space, do you think that the Harvard and UNC cases at the Supreme Court right now, once we know the outcome of those, uh, do you think that's going to affect your litigation efforts at will uh, and equal protection cases such as these?
2: Well, you know, it's hard to say until you see um, the decision, but, um, you know, I I, I said before that, you know, the, the cases are a bit of a mess because of. The, the tendency of the of the decisions, sometimes the decisions that we get out of the Supreme Court um, are very, very opaque. Um, they're, they're kind of like, uh, you know, my my. Uh, uh, I, they're, they're sort of country club Republican decisions that in which, you know, um, we we're going to allow some racial preferences to get past, but we don't want to be radical about it. We don't want them to go too far. And so, and and we certainly don't want um, uh, to to, to frighten people um, by calling attention to precisely what's going on. And so, you know, um, I don't think that anybody, um, who knows anything about college admissions, And, you know, your organization knows a great deal about college admissions because you've done some some fantastic uh, uh, studies of what happens, um, including uh, one at the University of Wisconsin a few years back. Um, Nobody thinks that, you know, that that, that there's kind of this. um, prudential and wise balancing that goes on in order to pick just the right class with just the right diversity. I mean, I, the, 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 the incentive is to get the numbers right. You know, if in the Harvard and UNC cases, um, we have a a strongly worded and clear repudiation of that concept. Um, I think it's going to it it could go. um, I think I think the the first thing it could do is is really put paid to the notion that um, you can't justify these preferences um, by um, societal discrimination. Or in you know more contemporary language, something called systemic discrimination, which is generally not defined. Usually comes down to simply a lack of balance. And although there are things that it could be that are very very real, um, it turns out that you know they either are not systemic or they're not racism, and they uh, uh, they may be some other type of ill that needs to be responded to, but they're not those things. And uh, and so I think that. Um, uh, If the court does that, um, there may be litigation opportunities with respect to further defining the fit that is required um, between these things like specific episode of discrimination, uh, uh, you know, discriminatory intent and uh, uh, government involvement, uh, particularly something called passive government involvement. Uh, uh, I, I think that um, there may be some uh, opportunity to do some litigation and, and get some rulings that make that fit be a little bit tighter than perhaps it, it has been in the past. Thank you so
0: much, Rick. And, and because it's my fault that we have to stop a little early, I'm going to stop asking questions and make this discussion uh, more holistic um, and hear from others who have different ideas and different points of view. So we have a number of questions. Um, not sure if it's appropriate to say names here, but uh, uh, and I should also I always say, Rick, if if I ask a question uh, you don't like, uh, just answer the question you wish was answered. Uh, so let let me start off here with the first one that I see. It's as a conservative university professor I have a difficult time teaching uh, 18 to 22 year olds, the moral and legal distinctions between equity and the equality of opportunity. Any advice on teaching this difference to students uh, told equity is the only moral outcome in politics and economics, any thoughts on that, Rick?
2: Yeah, so, so and you know, maybe I'm too much of an individualist. Um, uh, I think, uh, some, some of my friends on, on the right might think so. But the, the problem with equity, I mean, what was the problem? It seems to me what, what, what we have to ask ourselves, what was the problem? What was the moral force behind the civil rights movement? Um, and, you know, I, I am old enough to vaguely remember the end of the civil rights movement. And it had great, great, great moral force. And the, the moral force, I think, what, in, in the fact that um we were not treating um people as, uh, as as individuals we were not judging them based upon the content of their character we were judging them based upon the color of their skin we were if you want to get religious about it we were not treating them as as uh, unique individuals created in the image of god we were creating them as archetypes we were, we were we were treating them as members of groups and that was wrong and we knew it was wrong and we persisted in it for way too long but ultimately we, 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 we had to accept the fact that this was a grave a grave moral error and I, I think to I, I think to some extent equity repeats that grave moral error in the sense that it that, that it says look you know um, uh, w- what we need to do right now is not ensure that you uh, you know as an African- American male are treated equally and have equal opportunity, we must assure that your group, regardless of what happens to you individually, that your group gets its share of the goodies. And so we wind up once again, you know, treating people as archetypes treating them as racial types and not treating them as individuals, which seems to me was um, the exact, you know, just sort of the mirror image of the, the exact uh, moral error that we made in the past. And I, I just don't think, you know, I don't think that there's a balanced aspect, and I don't think that you make it okay um, by uh, by, uh, by by kind of balancing the score between the two groups. I think what you have to do is do what, you know, Chief Justice Roberts said, and that is, you know, if you want to stop discriminating on the basis of race, stop discriminating on the basis of race. There's really no other way to do it and, and no other prudent way to do it. You know, Charles Murray has got a, you know, pretty controversial book out about Um, You know, racial disparities, I don't know if he's right on the statistics, but the one thing that he does say is that, you know, we really don't want to um, uh, adopt a set of policies and legal doctrines, which encourages white people to think of themselves as a racial group once again, because we've had that experience in the past and it did not go well.
0: Really appreciate that response. And I've got some thoughts on this as well, but I think we should move on to some of our other questions. I I think that was a fantastic answer. If we have time, we can circle back. Um, Another great question here. You might want to take a note on this one. Um, An expert is writing in on this one. Um, Loan forgiveness is not the only area where USDA currently makes racial distinctions. For example, under a current drought relief program, white farmers receive compensation at 60% of losses, also called quote, underserved farmers, end quote, defined largely as members of racial minority groups are compensated at 90% of losses. Are you aware of any efforts to challenge this or uh, or other current administration's USDA race-based benefit
2: programs? I'm not aware, I'm, of, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any, uh, I don't know. I'm not aware of any current effort to challenge that. What I can say is that... Um, uh, my, my colleague, Dan Lenington and I have a list and, uh, you know, uh, we will work down that list. And I, and I know that the people at PLF have a list and they will work down that list and other organizations, yeah. Southeastern Legal, there are a lot of great organizations that are doing work in this area.
0: I, I can only say, well, I, I agree with that, but combine notes on those lists and see uh, uh, that we get to everything. Um, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, Another question here. Uh, These are longer, I hope you don't mind. Uh, What can be done outside of the courts to address this intentional racial discrimination? USDA has been a particularly bad actor. As I recall, a similar case coming in Judge O'Connor's docket, we can play whack-a-mole since the law is on our side, but agencies have no incentive to change their behavior. Would it come in the form of civil service reform or perhaps placing personal liability on those who approve of these policies? I like this question. I don't know, I'm not fully sure how to answer this question. I've been, I've been asked it many times before. Why would the government be doing such blatant, what appears to be racial discrimination, right? They, where are their lawyers? They can't possibly think this is okay. I, in fact, I don't think, I, I think they know it's illegal um, as this questioner asks, you know, or suggest, but if this is just whack mole they just do as much of this as they can. You know, the small army of litigators, it's, it's a mighty one, but the small army of litigators who are going to take these cases and beat back against this are going to miss
2: some of those moles. Um, yeah, anything else ready, we can do outside of the courts is, yeah. I, I suppose if you had the right um, trifecta, uh, you could you could pass a law um, which, precluded, <laughs> which precluded this type of thing, um maybe um as a way of non-judicial enforcement you could you you could uh you know mandate some type of agency review um you're always going to run into the problem that you know uh you know agencies you probably know this better than i do agencies tend to be captive by the sort of the permanent bureaucracy and it moves very, very slowly. Um, You know, you might wanna create incentives um, for litigators uh, uh, to challenge these things. Um, But, you know, I think a great start would be, um, you know, to pass a law that says, yeah, we're not, you know, uh, government-wide, we're not doing this anymore. But that's not what the Biden administration did. The Biden administration issued an executive order on day one, government-wide. Uh, basically saying, yeah, we are going to do this kind of thing. And, and that's what we've seen.
0: Well, I I add one other thing there, and, and I think it's, it may be too obvious to even state, but, um, ridicule is actually really helpful. Um, when I go around and talk about these things, um, Do my public speaking or in writing, speaking on radio, whatever. um, I say these things that sound ridiculous to the average American um, who opposes these sorts of uh, activities. And when the Biden administration or other government officials or bureaucrats who are are working on these uh, activities are confronted with what they really are, they stammer, they stutter, they don't want to answer the question. They're evasive. Um, ensuring that the public knows about these things um, and uh, the officials who are, who are working on them are appropriately held accountable, I think, is an important thing uh, that we should be doing as
2: well. Right, and that's why you know I mentioned I mentioned earlier the great work that you know CEO has done. Uh, you know, uh, in, in particular, sort of calling out some of these things. You know, it's one thing to say that everybody knows that the, you know, X university is engaged in racial preferences and college admissions. It's another thing to do the kind of work that your organization has done, um, which kind of quantifies those odds and shows really um, um, how um, uh, significant the, the discrimination has, has become. And, and, uh, uh, you know, um, as I said, I, I don't think that this does any good, um, uh, to the, you know, to, to the young people that are presumably benefited by it. I think it, it, it forces them into circumstances that they're not ready for that they would be ready for someday. Um, uh, but, but, uh, but but need a little bit more preparation for, um, and uh, uh, I, I, and I think uh, just showing how stark that is is a is a great public service.
0: Well, Rick, it's one of the reasons why we do it, and expect more fantastic studies uh, on the way as well. I have good. no
2: doubt. I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> thank, you, thank you very
0: much. I think we can take one more question here, and then Rick, I just want to give you an opportunity to wrap up with any thoughts that you have. Um, um, I do see two questions left, but they're from the same person. So let me just ask this, this first one here, which hopefully sums everything up. Um, how should we think about the repercussions of the politics involved here? Put differently, take for example, cost benefit analysis, which seems to demand a certain level of discretion. What well, cases such as this one have forced the question of what exactly was analyzed for the, of the uh, passage of this or that law targeting specific subpopulations to create more issues than they solve. Or does it just bring to the surface the problems that are already there? More concretely, how well-equipped do you think the court is to deal with the politicization of cost-benefit analysis or even math-slash-data for policymaking? I think one, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe be even more concrete here and uh, how I understand this. And, and there's a suggestion, I think, in this question, or maybe this is the primary question, and that is disparate impact, for example, um, uh, suggests based on statistical disparities that there's discrimination afoot. Uh, now, under some statutes, of course, disparate impact can be a very strong factor in deciding whether or not um, you know, actors are going to be liable for uh, some sort of, you know, discriminatory uh, program or activities. Um, but in others, you know, it's really just a factor to help determine whether or not there's something really nefarious afoot here. Um, are courts really dealing with the fact that cost benefit analysis and this sort of statistical data is being politicized um, for ends like equity of outcome?
2: Yeah, you know, um ever since I was uh, a a young lawyer with um, you know, different colored hair and more of it, um I uh am involved in uh, uh multi-district desegregation litigation. I have always thought their regression analysis was black magic. And uh courts are not particularly uh uh ill-suited to, to 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 or not well-suited to deal with that type of thing. Um and you know, uh we've always known that you know if somebody wants to do a disparity study it will reach the conclusion that it wants to and that's why i think that this opportunity to sort of litigate um, the specifics and tighten up this fit um is is very, very important because um we're we're dealing with potentially dangerous stuff here and uh you know it's it's uh Uh, it's not the case uh, that these very, very real problems are solved um, by, uh, by sort of repeating the way that we got to them. We got, we got into them by discrimination. We can't get out of them by discrimination. And um, if that's true, and we care about treating people based upon the content of their character and not the color of the skin, we can't allow that to be obfuscated um, you know, by statistical misdirection. And so I think that um, one of the ways that you deal with that is you limit the circumstances under which those statistics are relevant. And right now, I think we reached your drop. I
0: think I've got to go. go get my kindergartner uh, and then my preschooler. Um, but my kindergartner is more important. They're, they're strict about that. And don't leave so. <laughs> them. Thank, thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you both. On behalf of the Federal Society, I would like to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I would like to thank our audience for joining us and participating, especially with those great questions. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other programming. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you
0: for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society
1: member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.